I like what uh, Gary just said at the end of his prayer, that God would watch over the preaching of his word because the preaching of his word is a somber, solemn task. It's a joyous task to uh, unleash the power of the word through the foolishness of preaching, through the foolishness of one who's not mighty, not numbered among the not many mighty, not many noble. Because, beloved, we know that the cross of Christ is what is preached when one preaches. And the cross has always been an offense to man, to unsaved man, to unsaved woman. To the Jew, it's a stumbling block. To the Greek or to the Gentile, it is foolishness. There's a manifestation of this, a sad demonstration of this some 30 years ago. In November 1993 in Minneapolis, there was a conference called Reimagining. Uh, Reimagining where 2,200 people gathered to reimagine God and religion, even Christianity, uh, under the auspices of their own sinful, unsaved imagination. It was represented and supported by some of the largest denominations in the United States. The Presbyterian Church USA Uh, supported some $66,000 and sent delegates there. The United Methodist Church was also a large supporter. The conference featured a panel, the Reimagining Conference featured a panel, and there were many blasphemous aspects and teachings that came out of it. But one in particular, there was a Union Theological Seminary professor, Dolores Williams, who said this, quote, I don't think we need folks hanging on crosses and blood dripping and weird stuff. We just need to listen to the God within, end quote. And the sad reality, again, this is under the umbrella of people that would profess with their mouth to be Christians. In contrast, beloved, there is a river of blood that flows through the pages of Scripture. From Genesis 3.21, when God killed an animal to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve with animal skins, to Cain's bloodless sacrifice in rebellion against God, in contrast to Abel's sacrifice of blood, a bloody sacrifice by faith, to the Passover lamb that the nation of Israel applied to the the blood of the Passover lamb that the nation of Israel applied to their door lintel so that the death angel would pass over in judgment. Or in Leviticus chapter 1, as we read earlier in our scripture reading, I won't read all of Leviticus 1 again, but even there we are reminded when we open up this book, the book of Leviticus, which tells us the way to God is by sacrifice and the walk with God is by sanctification. And blood is a reminder of the whole sacrificial system that God put in place, that everything is covered with blood. It was a bloody business. Leviticus 1.5, he shall slay the young bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around on the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Verse 11, he shall slay it on the side of the altar northward before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall sprinkle its blood around on the altar. A big animal, an ox or a goat or a lamb. But if the offering is a bird, a turtle dove or a pigeon... Verse 15, the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and offer it up in smoke on the altar and its blood is to be drained out on the side of the altar. Beloved, again, a 
powerful reminder of the pollution and the contamination of your sin and of my sin, of the sin of all men and women since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden and the radical cost. God had told Adam and Eve in Genesis 2.14 that the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you most certainly shall die. There is a cost to sin. There is a cost for a substitutionary sacrifice. The Old Covenant uh, substitutional sacrifices of animals, which pointed towards the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. Why all this blood? Because without the shedding of blood, without the outpouring of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Beloved, please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. Our passage this morning is verses 15 through 22. Follow along as I read the word of God, the passage that he has before us here this morning. Hebrews 9 and verse 15 And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant in order that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, For it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and the scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Beloved, this is the word of God read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Beloved, This bloody sacrifice, this people, this person hanging on a cross, dripping with blood. These are not mythologies. These are realities. These are eternal realities by which sinful, a sinful man, sinful men, sinful women may draw near into the presence of the holy creator God of the universe. Now, as we walk through these eight verses we will see redemption death and blood redemption by death through blood and we know that what we had seen and studied and read last week verses 12 through 14 well actually chapter 1 through 14 but verses or verse 3 through 14 in any event but verse 12 we know that he the great high priest, our great high priest Christ has passed into a better place, a better sanctuary, a heavenly sanctuary. In verses 13 and 14, he also offered up a better sacrifice. And what we have here is just a continual recapitulation of these essential themes. 
these essential themes. First, there is redemption in verse 15. There is a mediator. There is death and there is inheritance under the umbrella of this redemption. He is the mediator of a new covenant. And in fact, this idea of Jesus Christ, the son to whom we were introduced in chapter 1, Jesus the man, Christ the Messiah, he is the mediator. And this occupies and takes up and is the dominant theme through the rest of the remaining portion of this doctrinal emphasis of this letter, all the way up to chapter 10, verse 18. Hebrews 1, 1 through 10, 18 is the great laying of the foundation of the deep doctrine. And then chapter 10, verse 19 is where he launches into more of an application-oriented aspect. And this idea of Christ as the mediator <clears throat> of the new covenant is the dominant theme through the rest of this doctrinal portion through Chapter 10, verse 18. But here, look again at the beginning of verse 15. And for this reason, for the reason of what we saw in verses 12, 13, and 14, and what preceded even that, he is the mediator of a new covenant, a mesites, one who intervenes between two parties. And the context here is to ratify a covenant. The same Greek word was used in Job chapter 9 to capture the idea of an umpire or an arbiter. Now, what we understand is in this great contrast between the old and the new in the book of Hebrews, there are two mediators that are immediately at hand here. The mediator of the old covenant, the mediator of the Mosaic covenant, <clears throat> the one biblical covenant that wasn't a unilateral dictate by God where God said, I will do this. The one covenant where God said, if you do this, then this will happen. And the people said, yes, we will do this. The mediator of that old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was Moses himself. He was the one, Moses, who brought the commands of God to the people of Israel and acted as a mediator of God, or with God, I should say, on behalf of the people. The Apostle Paul captures this in Galatians 3.19 when he wrote, the law was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, namely Moses, until, watch this, the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. The seed, the singular seed there is Christ, is Jesus. Now, <clears throat> while we think of this idea of mediation or a mediator, we need to be careful because in our culture, we might think of a mediator like a mediator that would come <clears throat> in between, for example, uh, the, the owners of a, pro of a professional sports teams and the players to avert a strike or a union and a company. And a mediator in this human construct now tries to find some kind of common ground, some kind of compromise between the two parties. But that is not at all whatsoever the picture that is given here. The mediation here is between a perfectly holy God and sinful, degenerate men. There is no compromise. There is no common ground. But even though God is holy and righteous and angry with sin every day, he is gracious and merciful and patient and long-suffering. So the Father sends the Son as the mediator to reconcile sinful humanity 
to himself. That is the picture here. That is what <clears throat> Apostle Paul brought out when he wrote to Timothy, for example, 1 Timothy 2.5. There's one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So here, at the beginning of verse 15, he is a mediator of a new covenant to secure your redemption through death. Christ's mediatorship, beloved, begins after his death. Verse 15 continues, in order that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions. Uh, Just know this, that death and covenants goes back to the earliest times of man, goes back to the earliest covenants that we even see in the pages of Scripture. And The author here says the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. The word transgressions here, it's a unique word. You can think of the word sin, the word transgression, the word offense. There are many different words in both the Greek and the Hebrew and even the English that capture the idea of man missing the mark, of man transgressing the law, of the corruption and the perversion, the distortion and the distorted nature of sin. And this particular one really has to do with the idea of the law of God, that God gave the law, God gave the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and man violates that. It's interesting, this word, this Greek word, the word transgression in the New Testament appears three times in Romans, once in Galatians and 1 Timothy, and twice here in Hebrews. The idea there is, with the exception of the one appearance in 1 Timothy, the other three books, Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews, are the most law-centric books, letters in the Bible. And that's where God uses this word transgression. And we can ask the question, what is transgression? What is sin? The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 14, which the uh, Westminster Confession is a nice help. It is not authoritative. It is a nice help. The word of God is our only authority. But question 14 asks the question, what is sin? And the answer is, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. That's a good encapsulated summary of sin, of transgression. You see, man calls sin a trifle. God calls it a transgression. Man calls it weakness. God calls it willfulness. Man calls it an accident. God says it's an abomination. Man calls it a disease. God calls it depravity. That is what the punishment is. That is what the offense is. That is what we need to be saved from, redeemed from. And beloved, dear friend, understand this. The bottom line is a religion, a faith system that doesn't save you, doesn't save us, doesn't save me from sin, is not worth going across the street. And even the Apostle Paul, when we think of redemption, when we think of forgiveness, when we think of the gospel, the good news, Paul began his gospel not with even the virgin birth of Christ, not even the sinless life of Christ, Paul began his gospel with the death of Christ. Turn for a moment to Second, or excuse me, First uh, Corinthians chapter fifteen. First <clears throat> Corinthians fifteen, verse one. 
we get Paul's statement of the gospel. He says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Now look at verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Beloved, the death of Christ is the necessary foundation for the good news, for redemption. And even the word redemption back here in verse 15, Hebrews 9. It's interesting in Scripture there are different words for that are translated as redemption. Uh, one word means to buy uh, out of the slave market. Another word means to, means to buy out of away from the slave market. There's another word translated as redemption that means to be loosed from the bonds of slavery. There's another word, which is the word here, which means to be loosed away from the bonds of slavery. Now, some of the distinctions there is you can imagine a slave that's in a market and somebody comes and buys him and he has a master. And maybe this is a very good and a wonderful master where the slave feels like a free man in the house of this master. But then in this imaginary scenario, he could be sold back into the slave market to be sold again as a slave. Or he could be, in, in a sense, for that short time, loosed from the bonds of slavery, only to be put back into the bonds of slavery. But if a slave is bought out away from the market, if a slave is loosed away from the bonds of slavery, like this word here, that means he or she is a free man, a free woman from thenceforth and forward. He or she is emancipated from imprisonment and bondage. That's the picture. That's the kind of redemption the author of Hebrews, God, is telling us here. The story is told, it's like the story that's told of the little boy that painstakingly built this beautiful little boat and he was playing with it out on a lake and the wind picked up and carried it away and he couldn't recover it. And some months later, and he was very sad, he loved this little boat. He went into a craft store on the other side of the lake and he saw this little boat for sale. Somebody found it and they were selling it. And he went and he said, that's my boat. And the proprietor of the shop said, well, that's wonderful, son. I'm sorry, you have to buy it. So the story goes, the little guy went back to his house. He scrounged up all the change he could find, went back, and he bought it. And he said to the boat, he goes, you are twice mine. I made you and I bought you. That's a beautiful picture of God's redemption of you. He is your creator God, and he has, if you are in Christ, he has bought you with a very costly price. You have been redeemed from the accumulated debts against your holy God because Jesus bridged the gap. He penetrated the barrier, the veil. He paid the price and he bought you back unto himself. <clears throat> Continuing on still here in verse 15, those who have been called may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. You haven't just been bought from the bonds of slavery. You have been bought. You have been loosed away into the joint heirship with Christ, with an eternal inheritance. And that adjective, the adjective eternal, the author loves to use that to describe your salvation, to describe 
and associated with the new covenant. Chapter 5, verse 9, he said, He became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Earlier here in chapter 9, verse 12, he talked about eternal redemption. Uh, In chapter 13, verse 20, you'll read the words, The great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. The eternal covenant is not the Mosaic old covenant. The new covenant is the eternal covenant that is at hand in our study here, and the author will apply when he gets to chapter 13. It's an eternal inheritance that we have here in 9.15, which begs the question or perhaps reminds us to ask the question, what is it that we bring to the table of salvation? We bring only our ruin. He, Jesus, brings redemption and he brings riches, untold eternal riches. Not the kind of riches that moth can eat away at or rust can destroy or a thief can steal, but eternal riches in Christ, which you have the down payment on now that we enjoy and that awaits you even going forward. And beloved, back here in the context of the contrast between the old system and the new covenant, the death of an ox or a goat or a lamb or a turtle dove doesn't secure, can't secure anybody any kind of inheritance. It can point to the securing of an eternal inheritance, but it can't secure it. But in the new covenant, a rich inheritance is your assured legacy. Acts 20, verse 32. Now I commend you, Paul says, to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance. This inheritance is unearned, it's imperishable, and it's eternal. And, bless you, and (laughs) a special place in the heart for pregnant women, I guess. (laughs) For pregnant mothers. Beloved, not just as new, just not just New Covenant believers. Also, look at the text, Old Covenant believers, Old Testament saints that says the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, that were committed under the first covenant. This is Jesus' salvation of the Old Testament saints. All those animal sacrifices couldn't ultimately take away and deal with the problem of their sin. It would stay the wrath of God for a time, and it pointed towards Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul, Romans 3.24, we looked at this, I think, last week or the week before. In Romans 3.24, Paul says, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, same word, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. If you're here as a helosterian, as a mercy seat, as, as the cover of the Ark of the Covenant, as a propitiation in his blood through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness. Watch this, because... In the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. So it's not just the New Testament church and the New Covenant believer that has this forgiveness, this redemption by virtue of the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. It goes and it points back. Because he is a mediator of a new covenant to secure redemption through death, watch this, for all the peoples. 
for all the peoples. The new covenant reconciles, we saw back in the author's quotation of Jeremiah's prophecy from Jeremiah 31 that we saw back in Hebrews 8, that in the new covenant, it reconciles man to man because man is reconciled to God from the inside out for all the peoples. New Testament saints, Old Testament saints, Jews and Gentiles. It was interesting. <clears throat> Last Sunday I had good fellowship with a brother talking about uh, to what level, to what extent does the new covenant apply to the church and to the New Testament believer given that it was made and it was given to the nation of Israel. And it's interesting, it's almost as if, as if the author of Hebrews anticipated that question and answers it here. Beloved, listen up. The new covenant was promised and given to Israel. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel chapter 36, even Joel chapter 2 points towards the new covenant. Even Deuteronomy 30 verse 6, talking about a circumcised heart, all with the nation of Israel points to this new covenant. So it was given to Israel, but... It was not restricted to, it was not limited to Israel. That's why the author says those who have been called may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. Now, normally when we hear the word called, even as we sang, and I think in our last song about being, how God called us, we think in the context of the New Testament church. And to be sure, we are the called of God, the called out ones, kaleo, ecclesia, the called out, the church is Tim in the membership class uh, will tell you or has told you as well. We can think of the great passage, Romans 8, verses 28 through 30, the all-encompassing love of God and purpose of God, Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined. To become conformed to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Verse 30, and whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So we think of this in the context of the church. But beloved, it was the same method, the same mode of salvation in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It required regeneration by the Holy Spirit. It was by faith alone. And so from a theological standpoint and in the context here, the transgressions that were there before point to the fact that this is the all-encompassing salvation of all of God's children. There's not one gospel for Gentiles and another gospel for Jews. There's not one gospel on this side of the cross and another on the other side. There's more clarity. There's further revelation now that Christ came and died and rose again, but it's the same gospel. So Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, Jews and Gentiles together in one body. Even the tribulation saints and those that will be saved during the millennium. All those saved for all time are the called of God. One died for all, once for all. That's the message of Hebrews that we see again here. <clears throat> That's redemption. There is redemption by death. The author brings out in verses 16 and 17. And beloved, understand this, we can't honor, appreciate, and worship 
God, for what he's done for us, unless we understand the cost, unless you understand the cost to achieve your redemption. And what the author does here in verses 16 and 17 is he explains the new covenant is like a last will and testament. And this is the idea that, as I mentioned before, under the new covenant, God doesn't just deal with the transgression. He doesn't just deal with the curse. He also lays the foundation for the blessings, for all the blessings. Verse 16, 4, where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. Now, if you have an English Standard Version, it says, for a will is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. The King James Version says, uh, where a testament is. It's the same word, diatheke, as covenant. That's why the New American Standard continues with the same translation, covenant. But what the author is doing here is he's bringing out this beautiful aspect of two different nuances of this one Greek word. Uh, to the Jewish person, and even in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word diatheke, the same word covenant here, specifically is used exclusively to talk about the covenants, uh, the Hebrew word barith, the covenant that God gave to Abraham and to Noah and to David and the prophecy in Jeremiah as well. But to the Greco-Roman world, this word diatheke, they understood this more in the context of a will and of a testament. And so what the author does is he pivots here in verses 16 and 17, uses the same word to bring out this other nuanced aspect of it. And by the way, verse 16, Hebrews 9, 16, this is the origin of what all of your Bibles say of the first 39 books, the Old Testament. And the latter 27 books are the New Testament. The word testament is the same, and it comes from Hebrews 9, verse 16 here, this word here. The entire division of the Bible today comes from this word that the New American Standard translates as covenant. And this whole idea of a covenant is of central importance to the writer of Hebrews. But here he says, and again, he's using this illustration of a last will and testament to help us understand the significance and the necessity of the death. Verse 17, for a covenant, again the nuance here is a will or a testament, is valid only when men are dead. For it's never enforced while the one who made it lives. I mean, we understand this for a will to even be read, for a will to take effect, it means the one whose will it is must have passed away. But what we know is this kind of will, this kind of testament, this covenant that God made is effectual and it's unilateral. It's effectual. Did God write this will? Did he write this testament with no one in mind? Were there just blank lines? Or was there, were there names? Ian, or excuse me, John Murray, in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, had this choice quote about the idea of the fact that this will, this testament was written with you in mind, even before the foundation of the world. This is what Murray said. It's to beggar the concept of redemption as an effective securement of release by price and power to construe it as anything less than the effectual accomplishment 
which secures the salvation of those who are its objects. Listen, last sentence. Christ didn't come to put men in a redeemable position, but to redeem to himself a people. Beloved, what that means is what we read elsewhere in Scripture, Revelation and elsewhere, is your name was written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. That is the effectual nature of the new covenant, the effectual nature of this will and testament. Also, it's unilateral. And again, you can think of this even in our modern time, a will, somebody may contest a will, but you can't bargain a will or a testament with the one who wrote it, with the one who made it. You accept it or you don't accept it. And it says the one who made it. And it's interesting, the word made it there comes from the same word for covenant. And this is used in, again, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. For example, when God made a covenant with Abraham, in Genesis 15, 17, when God literally cut a covenant with Abraham, which was the Hebrew idea of making a covenant, of cutting a covenant. You may remember Genesis 15, and again, this is the Abrahamic covenant, uh, 430 years before the old covenant with Moses. But Genesis 15, 17, it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. Uh, Abraham had basically taken these animals, cut them in two, put them uh, in two different paths here with a pathway in between. And then the Lord caused a sleep to come upon Abraham. And then this smoking oven, which was an appearance of Christ, an appearance of God, passed between these pieces. Verse 18, on the day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, cut a covenant with Abraham. Same word as we have here in Hebrews chapter 9. The point, beloved, of this illustration is God put Abraham to sleep because God was unilaterally making this covenant. This is part of him saying, this is what I will do with you Abraham. That's why he was put to sleep. The covenant's unilateral. It's, a, in a sense, an unconditional promise that God gives to him. God enters into his covenant with Abraham unilaterally. That's why he said seven chapters later in Genesis, Genesis 22, verse 16, and you'll recognize this theme if you've been here through Hebrews, God says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. It is unilateral. It is eternal. That's why your inheritance is eternal. Because the fulfillment of it is not dependent upon your works, your actions. The temporal blessings here and now are dependent upon that. But if you're in Christ, your eternal inheritance in heaven is signed, sealed, and will be delivered. Redemption by death through blood. Our last point, verses 18 through 22. Leviticus 17, verse 11. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Beloved, there's power in the blood. 
which by the way, if you're interested, that's the title for the sermon this morning. And what we have in verses 18 through 22 is a summary. It's a vortex, in a sense, of the river of blood flowing through the pages of Scripture. Look at verse 18. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. It was not ratified without blood. And blood appears, hema is the Greek word, appears 21 times in Hebrews, 11 times, more than half of those times, just here in chapter 9. Verses 19 through 20, for when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, And sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. Uh, We don't have time to go there, but I commend to you Exodus 24. Go to, well, you know what? I'm going to do it anyway. I'm just going to call an audible. Sorry, Gary. Uh, Exodus 24. This actually came up in our Thursday morning men's Bible study as we were in John chapter 16, just the idea of now on this side of Christ, we can approach God, the Father, and he will hear us and he will answer us directly. So Exodus 24, verse 1, Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. That was in the old covenant. They couldn't approach God. They couldn't come near to God. Verse 2, Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord. He's the mediator in the Old Covenant. But they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do again. That's the distinction between the we will of the old versus the I will of the new Verse 4, and Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled or gushed on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Verse 8, so Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Back here, we finish up in our passage, Hebrews 9, verse 21 And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. All things. This includes the artifacts and the people. It includes the priests and the congregation. Every artifact, beloved, used in the system is consecrated and fills the contamination of sin because blood covers everything. And just a point on this, the author of Hebrews says, the way it's translated here, one may almost say what God is saying here is that this general statement applied in most cases because 
blood, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. But God is gracious and he's merciful. And in the old covenant system, there were purification rites where water or oil or fire or incense or even in the case of extreme poverty, very fine flour could be offered up by a very impoverished Israelite in faith. But by far, the most common was blood. The covenant was ratified by blood, and the sanctuary was sanctified by blood. Both the old covenant high priest and the new covenant great high priest, Christ, enter a sanctuary by virtue of a sacrificial bloody death a blood sacrifice and those old sacrifices were only a shadow of the sacrifice that was epitomized and realized in Christ their effect was minimal and external and even the endless repetition of sacrifices from generation to generation to generation of multiple sacrifices cried out for the provision of a once-for-all sacrifice. The old, sacri- the old covenant sacrificial system was crying out for something greater to come because the old covenant system purified the flesh, but it couldn't purify the heart. That requires a new covenant. That's why he says at the end of verse 22, look at it, without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It uh, might even be better understood or translated it as without the or without outpouring of blood. And it comes from the same Greek word for blood, hema, uh, that we get here. Hema plus an outpouring. Point here is it's not just the sacrifice of blood, it's the application of the blood. Even as we saw the picture in the old covenant, and even spiritually, metaphorically, the blood of Christ must be applied to you for it to take into effect, for the forgiveness, for the release, for the sending away, the emancipation from bondage, the pardon from your guilt. Redemption, beloved, is emancipation of the slave. Forgiveness is pardon of the criminal. And notice the author does not say forgiveness of sins. He doesn't even say forgiveness of sin. He just says forgiveness. And the absolute usage of the word here makes its application comprehensive and absolute. It's not just forgiveness of specific sins for a time, as was the case in the old. It's complete and total deliverance. Beloved, the redemption that you enjoy, that we enjoy, is free to us. It's free to you. Dear friend, it's free to you. It is a free offer of salvation. But it is costly to God. We dare not think that somehow in the cross, God is merely overlooking sin. There was a great and terrible price that was paid by the man, Jesus. A man had to pay the price. That's why Jesus wasn't just born as a baby and died. He could have been born as a baby, died. I mean, he's a human being. No, he had to be tempted just as you are tempted. He had to satisfy God's requirement of a sinless, spotless, 
perfectly obedient life, of a life where every nanosecond of his existence, he loved in his humanity the Lord God, his Father, with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And even that he would, when he suffered on the cross, not just suffer the physical agony of death and torture. A baby could suffer the agony and torture of death, but the man Jesus, after 30 years of perfect communion in his humanity with God the Father, had to suffer the wrath of God of separation. When he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lamach sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The spiritual anguish that he suffered on the cross as your substitute and my substitute is why he lived as Amen. And also, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's not just that God treated Christ on the cross as though he lived my sinful, wicked life, but also when God looks at me, when God looks at you, he sees the perfect, sinless, obedient life of Christ. That's also at play here. Isaac Watts See from his head, his hands, his feet. Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Watts didn't use the word blood, but that is the imagery there. And beloved, in conclusion, there's nothing more precious nor more powerful than the blood of Jesus. Martin Luther said rightly, one drop of Jesus' blood is more valuable than the entire heavens and the earth. That's why, and not the blood that came from his knee when he scraped it when he was 12. There's nothing magical about that blood, but the blood that was shed, the atoning blood. That's why 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And finally, Revelation 1, 5, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you. Thank you for your sinless life, your obedient life. Thank you for allowing your blood to be spilled in the dust of a hill some 2,000 years ago so that you saved me, that you saved all of us here. You saved all of your children in Africa and China and Russia. And you saved even Adam and Eve. It went backwards and it went forwards and it will continue to go until all is made all in you for your glory and for our eternal joy. We pray even now as we close out our time with this singing that you will be glorified in all that we do and we will praise you and the sacrifice you provided on our behalf. It is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, we pray and that we sing that we do all these things. Amen.